0: Part 2 of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is about serious sin. The superscription tells us it was written by David after Nathan the prophet came to him after his affair with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What do I mean by serious sin? Dealing with serious sin is something I've done for years as a pastor and a seminary professor as I said last week it's not, it was not unusual to meet have new students come to seminary who were thinking that by going to seminary they could somehow deal with the serious sin in their life that is that the sacrifice of giving up a prosperous career or whatever their plans were would somehow make it, them square with God for what they had done or going into ministry of some type maybe missions in a terrible third world situation would cause God to look with favor on them given what they had done my wife and I were in campus ministry back in the 60's and 70's when there were many many students who got involved in serious sin promiscuity, drugs, theft and Other crimes. By serious sin I mean I don't mean that some sins are really bad and other sins are not so bad. I just recognize that some sins have an effect upon the sinner and upon other people. An effect that leads the person to conclude they can never be forgiven or accepted by God. A serious sinner is one who repeatedly asks the question. How could God ever forgive me, given what I've done? How could God ever accept me again? Or perhaps, oh, I know God's forgiven me, but He could never love me in the same way again, not after what I've done. Many people feel that way because of their background, what they failed to do or what they did do. How could God ever love me again, they wonder. That's what David is asking. Last week we looked at the background of the story, which you can find in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. There we read, In the springtime when kings go out to war, David neglected his duty as a king and stayed home, was walking around on the roof of his palace in Jerusalem, and he saw a woman who was bathing to cleanse herself after a monthly impurity. She was very beautiful, so he sent some of his servants to inquire, who is this lady? He discovered her name was Bathsheba. She was married to Uriah the Hittite, or if you want to make it a little more colloquial, Uriah the Pagan. The Hittites were a tribe, famous warrior tribe, from modern-day Asia Minor or Turkey. And if you remember the old Saturday Night Live episodes with the Coneheads, the Hittites would wear helmets that looked like the cone heads. They were fierce warriors. This particular Hittite, Uriah, is the armor bearer for David's commanding general, Joab. The armor bearer means, well, when you go to a battle, every archer's going to try to kill the, op, the opposing general. That's the wind shot. You make that shot with your arrow, you, you're going to get promotions and medals. So his job was to hold the shield up and protect Joab. And if somebody broke through the lines and came after Joab with a sword, his job, Uriah's job, was to stand there and take the hit and make sure the general survived. So he was quite a fierce warrior of his own kind. His wife is beautiful, David summons for her, takes her into the palace and effectively rapes her. She sends word to him sometime later, I am pregnant. So David plots a cover-up. He sends a letter to Joab, press the battle against the Ammonites in Rabbah, the city they were attacking. Put, put Uriah in the front of the battle and then withdraw so that he is killed. And that's what happens. He has joab to send uriah back to visit him in the palace and he plies him with good food and drink gets him happy and drunk tells him go home to your wife tonight uriah says no how could i do that when your soldiers are out in the field camping in tents they're not allowed to have their wives with them they don't get leave to go home to their wives during the war it would be wrong for me to take a privilege not given to the other soldiers. So he gets his sleeping mat and he lays it out on the, ro- the stones, the paving stones in the front of the king's palace. And he lays down and he sleeps on the rocks for the night. We quickly see that Uriah the Hittite is behaving much more righteously than David, the anointed king of Israel. eventually the baby's born and gets sick and it's evident the baby's going to die David lays with his face in the dirt for a full week the elders in his household come to him with food and say get up and bathe and eat and he won't I suspect he wrote Psalm 51 during that week he had a lot of time to think about what he had done and why he had done it and he came to realize what he had done and how serious it was how seriously he had sinned and why he had sinned so seriously to begin with. In recognizing those things, I I suspect Psalm 51 in its rough form was written. He then worked on it over and over because he tells us towards the end of the Psalm, God, if you will do these things that I request in this prayer, I will teach other transgressors your ways and sinners will come to you. His whole point in writing the psalm was to tell other people who had sinned seriously that God offers full forgiveness to them. And what is full forgiveness? That's explained in the psalm in his prayers. He, he asked God to forgive him of his sin. To remove the condemnation that's due him for what he had done. when we are forgiven as Christians God no longer looks at us with a condemning look instead as a Christian He looks at us through our Savior Jesus Christ and His righteousness He sees us as the righteous person we should be not as the sinner we are In considering his sin, David said, I was sinful from the moment of conception. That doesn't mean that conception is somehow sinful. That means that he understood he had a sin nature. And that nature was part of the core of who he is. He looked at himself and he said, You know, the stuff I am is sinful. The reason I did this is because it's the way I am. When I was a boy, we had a dog that the local paper boy struck and kicked hard. And the dog turned mean that day and would go after anyone who approached the house. Something changed in his nature. He became a mean dog. You couldn't, no matter how hard we tried to train him to be good, we'd go out and stand between the dog and the visitor And the dog would never attack one of us children. The dog continued to be a mean dog. Its nature got changed by what happened. David realized, I did this because it's my nature. In Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. The first murder. David's murder in many ways is even more heinous. It wasn't his brother, but it was a servant, Uriah, who had come to Israel to worship the one true God. Uriah, the convert, he has killed to protect himself from scandal. And in Genesis 4, Cain is warned that sin is at his door waiting to entrap him, to devour him. Cain, of course, ignores the caution from God and ends up killing his brother Abel. But sin is crouching at your door. The image is wolves at the door. Over a year ago I started looking at family history as did one of my cousins. The oldest ancestor we could learn about came over from Ireland after the famine. The woman he married was considered one of the pioneers in that part of western New York. When she died there were front page articles in the local papers about her death one of the last of the pioneers so I wanted to find out what they were talking about and I started reading about what the pioneers faced and western New York at that time was a wild forest and there are many stories of the pioneers being gone for the day coming home and pack of wolves coming after them and they would run for their life through the forest and see the light of a cabin and race to the door of the cabin bang on the door hope that the farmer who was in there had a long rifle and would come out with the rifle and shoot at the wolves and scare them away she undoubtedly had parents and close friends who had had such encounters Genesis 4 gives that kind of an image sin is like the wolf pack at your door wanting to devour you be careful what you do David ignored that warning of sin and realize that that's why sin overtook him because he didn't exercise caution as a king. He's walking at night. He looks where he shouldn't be looking. When I was in campus ministry and we would do evangelism in the dorms, I used to teach the young men I'd work with, you walk into a dorm room, there's probably going to be pictures on the wall that are inappropriate. It's two things, eyes up, eyes down, eyes left, eyes right. One of those directions is always safe. When we do beach beach evangelism, it would be the same problem. Eyes up, eyes down, eyes left, eyes right. David hadn't learned the discipline of eyes up, eyes down, eyes left, eyes right. One way is always safe. When you walk around on the palace, which is in the highest part of Jerusalem, you can see everybody's rooftop. You see what you shouldn't be seeing. He didn't have the discipline to turn his head away. And instead of calling for a servant to find out who this beautiful woman is, he should have called for a priest, come and read to me from the Bible so that I will think about what is holy and pure rather than think about what is wrong. Later, Bathsheba gives birth to another child who becomes Solomon, the famous wise king of Israel. Imagine being so wise that people would come from great distances just to hear you talk. That was Solomon, the Queen of Sheba and others came to hear his wisdom. We still read his wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Where did Solomon learn the wisdom? His father probably told him, you better reflect upon life and learn to pay attention and gain wisdom. Don't just do what seems expedient at the moment. Think about things. Because David hadn't thought about things and he got himself into a lot of trouble because of it. He sinned seriously. reached the point where he wasn't sure God could ever forgive him for what he had done. So he begins by saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion he prays for God's grace to be shown to him mercy is favor shown on one who can, does not deserve it and cannot repay it he asks for God to take pity on him because he's, he's just the object of pity for what he's done Have mercy on me O God according to your unfailing love Most of your translations will say loyal love or unfailing love. It's a special word for love in the Old Testament. Chesed. Chesed love or loyal love or covenant love. It's the love that a bride and groom make when they get married and they make vows to each other. The vows are always a contrast. In sickness or in health, in good times or bad times, for better or for worse, until death do us part. I will love you no matter what. It's chesed love. It's a loyal love, a covenant love, a commitment love. And so his request is according to God's loyal love, according to God's great compassion, and have mercy on him. That is, he doesn't say, God, have mercy on me because I'm king. I'm such a cool dude. Look, I've written all these worship songs that are will be in the Bible for thousands of years I expanded the domain of Israel even people like Uriah the Hittite have come to worship because of what I've done here God I'm worth forgiving I'm valuable to what you're doing he doesn't try to line up all the reasons why God should forgive him He just says, God, forgive me because it's your character to forgive. You are loyally loving, you are great in compassion, and you are merciful. It's your character to forgive. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He walks away from his father and from holiness, he eats the food being offered to pigs, and he comes to a sense as he goes, What am I doing? I'm eating the food offered to pigs. It's not that way in my father's house. I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I'm not worthy to be recognized as your son. Because he knows his father's character. He knows his father would never refuse someone who was repenting of sin and wanting to live the right way. The character of God is such that if we turn to Him, he will forgive us. That is what David begins the psalm in telling us. Know who God is. Think for a moment about what we read in the newspapers all the time. The Muslim fanatics who walk into a concert and blow up dozens and dozens of young women at a concert, thinking that somehow they're honoring God. Who is the God that they want to honor? He's not a God that is known for compassion or for love or for mercy. He's a God who seems to take, if I am to understand what they're doing, He takes pleasure when His worshippers blow themselves up, when His worshippers kill anybody else. That's a monster. That's not a God worthy of worship. That's a monster. Islam has got to live with that. That's what the fanatic Muslims have brought to the rest of the world about who Allah is their God supposedly is a monster not a God of compassion who offers forgiveness even to unworthy people it's also good to note in Psalm 51 how David describes how seriously he sinned he piles up words for sin iniquity sin evil transgression he calls himself a transgressor a transgression is, transgressor is one who is Rebelled against the lawful authority. Some translations say my rebellious acts instead of my transgressions. He basically goes through Hebrew and finds every word he can in his language that describes evil or sin and he uses it to describe himself. This is someone who's looked very closely in the mirror and realizes what's there and is not hiding what's there at all. Part of the basis of forgiveness is knowing who God is that we appeal to to forgive us. Another part is looking at ourselves and understanding why we need to be forgiven, what we've done that is so serious, and why we did it. The flaw in our very nature. that causes us to bend, be bent towards sin, to be like Cain, who, when the wolf pack is at the door, cracks the door open and lets him in, and they devour him and, his, and destroy him and as he murdered his brother. Psalm 51 was written to teach us that in the mercy, grace and mercy of God, even the worst of sinners... Can find the joy of salvation, which is the removal of condemnation, resulting in restored fellowship with God, and and restoration to service for God, where God could be pleased to use us and make our life count for something beyond what the income tax people see it it accomplished last year. In verse eleven and twelve, David says, "Do not cast me from your presence or take your holy spirit from me." Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing willing spirit to sustain me. Do not cast me from your presence. What does that mean? Where is God's presence at that time in Israel's history? The Shekinah glory, which represents the presence of God, filled the temple as before it had filled the tabernacle in the wilderness. So he's saying, do not cast me from presence. Don't exile me from Jerusalem. What would we do with David if we were responsible to render judgment? How many would say he should be allowed to... Rem- How many would say, well, they need to do something. We'd probably send him in exile for a short time. I've asked literally over a thousand Christian leaders that question. And the, it's always the same response. Nobody raises their hand that the leader should be allowed to remain in leadership. They usually agree that a good strategy would be to pick an outpost somewhere, some isolated hamlet, and send them there for a few years, kind of get rid of the embarrassment. And then maybe if they behave well there, let them come back. That's what we would probably have done with David. But God doesn't do that. David says, don't cast me from your presence. Let me stay in Jerusalem, which is where he rules as king. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He wants to remain in Jerusalem as king. And God allows him to do that. I remember some years ago a colleague who confessed to adultery. And where I was working at the time, said this is serious. We need to make an example to everyone of serious sin. We deal with it. We don't just look the other way. So his career abruptly ended, harshly ended. I remember going to the person senior person in charge saying, "Where is grace? Where is restoration?" All that's happened here is this fellow has been destroyed. He was a great pastor, a really good pastor and a phenomenal preacher. They just destroyed him. I don't I never understood fully why. And then he went into his exile as I suppose they intended and never was restored to what he, his potential, which still saddens me as you can tell as I tell this story because he was my friend. We would meet every week and pray together as brothers in Christ. He taught me a great deal. He was African-American, taught me a great deal about the African-American church and the difficulties, especially in Chicago in other cities where you have the urban blight problem. Help me become a better preacher by giving me feedback and insight. And don't understand why people wouldn't look at Psalm fifty one and allow the pattern that God showed with David. David says, creating me a willing spirit to sustain me. He asks for the condemnation to be removed. Cleanse me from sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and then I will be clean. So what is he saying there? He's asking God to become the priest who offers the sacrifice which doesn't exist in the Old Testament. There is no sacrifice to cleanse someone from adultery. No sacrifice to cleanse someone from murder. He says, God, you have to become my high priest and offer a sacrifice for me. Hyssop was a a plant that kind of had little flowers on the end of it they would dip it in the blood of a blood sacrifice and sprinkle it around the altar using the hyssop as a sprinkler so he says God you have to become my high priest of course we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ became our high priest and he was the offering for our sins his blood was shed to grant us forgiveness so, without realizing it directly, David is a messianic here. He's anticipating the New Testament where God Himself, in the form of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, would become our high priest and would offer Himself as a sacrifice for forgiveness of our sins. So, for the person who sins seriously, who says, After what I've done, how could God ever accept me again? The answer is God Himself became a priest, a high priest and offered a sacrifice for our sin, His Son Christ, and has sprinkled us with the blood of Christ, symbolically saying that the uh, the price of your sin was paid for by the sacrifice, a substitute for us. Creating in me a, new, a clean heart, He says, He uses the word, which is used in Genesis, the beginning, where God creates everything that is in seven days. He created this, He created that. It's that word. David doesn't say, give me a reconditioned heart, give me a rebuilt heart, give me a remanufactured heart. He recognizes his spiritual life as a shambles because of what he's done. How can he go to worship God when there's that baby buried in the ground? And Bathsheba's been made a widow, and other men who died in the attack, their wives became widows, and their children became orphans. How can he go to the temple and sing songs of worship after what he's done? He's so ashamed. His relationship with God has been torn apart. So he says, God, I need I need a brand new spiritual life. I don't just need some what the commercials in Illinois are duct tape. A duct taped spiritual life. I need a brand new spiritual life. So he says create in me a clean heart. He's he's asking God basically go to heaven and on the shelf where spiritual life, a person's spiritual life is made, pull a brand new one off the shelf and bring it to me. Not a rebuilt spiritual life. Many times the person who sins seriously feels that I can never walk with God as I once did. He could never... I could never love him as I I should because of what I've done. I'm so stained by what I've done. So you have to pray, God, give me a brand new heart as David did. And God did that for David. This psalm was written after his affair with Bathsheba as were many other psalms. I think Part of the fullness of forgiveness is the restoration to what we were before. In the Alliance, we often talk about Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our Coming King. He does heal us, as Laurie was talking about. Laurie, I've been very impressed with how you've faced the struggle with your eyes on Jesus. It's encouraged me to keep my eyes on Christ in my struggle after a stroke which has left me in many ways what T.S. Eliot called in one of his great poems A Hollow Man so much of what I was the stroke stole away from me and is gone so I pray Jesus our healer heal me heal my brain from what the stroke did to it heal my leg and my arms from what the stroke did to them And give me new ones again that can work for your service, for your glory. I think because Jesus healed so many in His earthly ministry, because He's the firstborn of the resurrection, that is a legitimate prayer for us to pray when we are faced with with physical trials, to pray for healing. As the firstborn of the resurrection, We sometimes don't think about that. The resurrection body is the body that Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's a perfect body. It doesn't have all these things that happen to us because of illness and disease or accident. One day, I remember at dinner, we asked our daughters, what would you learn at school today? And one of them said, I learned today that everybody's got a weirdness. We said, what do you mean by that? She was talking about everybody's got something weird. For me, I've got this little finger that will bend the wrong way. I do that with kids that go, look at this. They'd love to watch that little finger pop up and down (laughs) as the joint bends in, not just out. We all have a weirdness in our body from birth. And many of us have a weirdness because of something like stroke or cancer. Some illness, some effect of sin in the world. My body is prone to such things from the moment of conception because everything has been twisted by sin. Everything in creation. Paul says in Romans, all of creation groans and travails because of the effect of sin. Everything's twisted and out of alignment. Our Savior when he rose from the dead showed us the hope we have of resurrection. One day we will be as we ought to be. Our bodies will be restored. Our brains, even David's spiritual life was put back together in the grace of God. That's what the fullness of forgiveness is. It includes the removal of condemnation and restoration of our life to God's intention. Then David prays in verse 11, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was, if you remember the story of David from the Old Testament, when the prophet came, he anointed David with oil symbolic of symbolizing the Holy Spirit coming upon him to enable him to rule Israel as king do not take your Holy Spirit from me as a prayer I be allowed to remain as king he well remembers when the Holy Spirit left his predecessor Saul and David became well known in the palace because (coughs) excuse me he would play his harp and sing songs which would calm Saul down when he was losing it mentally If the spirit departs from David, he's no longer king and somebody else will be anointed king. He wants to continue to rule as king. That's his prayer. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He's prayed earlier, let me remain in Jerusalem as king. No, he says, let me continue to be your chosen king so I can guide the people in righteousness and do what is right. He wants to keep his ministry, in other words. Excuse me, my Bible's on my iPad. It keeps going to sleep. I don't know why I need to give it some vitamins, I guess. There's got to be a setting that will keep it to stay awake longer and not go to sleep on me. Sprinkle me with water and I will be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Grant me the, the ultimate joy of being forgiven, the New English Translation says. And then he prays, Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all my guilt. And create in me a pure heart. Let the bones you have crushed Rejoice. David has been crushed by his sin. The recognition of what he's done before God has made him feel like as the movie title from a few years ago, Dead Men Walking. He feels like a dead man walking. His bones are crushed. There's no strength left within him. He's just crushed. Many we have an adopted daughter who had a genetic condition from her birth mother that gave her a lot of disabilities in school and growing up. Unfortunately, she chose the path of sin, the path of the prodigal daughter. There were many days when, as a professor, I would go to class and I would pray the bones God had crushed, my love for my daughter, and the sadness over what she had chosen to do, made me feel like I couldn't walk I was crushed by the effect of sin on our family and when, what we knew it meant for her in the future it was hard to do anything David is at that point where it's just hard to do anything as, like his bones themselves are, the structure that holds them together has come apart so he's asking God, put me back together so that I can serve you. And then create created me a pure heart. Go to heaven and get me a brand new spiritual life so that I can walk with you and worship you. Let me hear joy. Experience the joy of your deliverance. Where do you hear joy and gladness? At a party. Where were the parties in ancient Israel? They were festivals. All the festivals revolved around worship of God when there would be a sacrifice for sin. He says, I want to continue to be able to worship you. And he says, let me hear joy and gladness. He's praying specifically to worship God as we sang many of the songs earlier today. Were songs... We want to use our voice to worship you, God, because you've forgiven us. You've changed us from what we were into something, someone different. So we want to be your disciple. We want to walk with you. Those songs express that attitude. And then a clear statement, You do not want sacrifice or I would offer it, a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices God desires are a humble spirit, a humble and repentant heart. That is what, oh Lord, you will not reject. Because you favor Zion, do what is good for her. And in this strange phrase, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Is he asking God to become a bricklayer? No, he's not build up the walls of Jerusalem in a very real sense the king is the best defense a nation has you may remember a few years ago we had a new president take office and the first thing he did was invade Granada what was that all about that was about saying you mess with us you're in trouble When I was a boy, there were bullies that went to the school I went to. The bully would always pick some kid the first day of school and beat him up. I learned that the only way to beat a bully is to make him hurt. Bullies don't like to hurt. Pick him up and run into the stone wall that surrounded our playground. Put him on your back and just run into the wall as hard as you could. If you could make him hurt enough, he'd leave you alone the rest of the school year. That's the nature of bullies. They just beat people up for the joy of it. David doesn't want to be a bully. David wants to be a king who people know if you mess with Israel, you don't want to mess with David. Because David will come back and he'll besiege Ramah, and your city will be captured. So leave the cities of Israel alone. So build up the walls of Jerusalem is really a prayer that God would extend David's reign. In fact, that's what happened. The Davidic covenant was given to David after the the affair with Bathsheba. God did extend his, his domain and did extend his promises to use David as anointed servant. And did protect Israel by making David a strong king once again. So a humble and repentant heart, that is what you will not reject, O Lord. If you've sinned seriously, cultivate a humble and repentant heart. What's a humble heart? A humble heart will look at how serious your sin was and why you sinned so seriously. And will confess that to God. God, this is what I did. This is why I did it. And then we'll beg him for forgiveness because he is a merciful and loving and compassionate God who takes pity upon those who are the object of pity, not of praise because of what they've done. A repentant heart is a heart that's had a complete change of mind. In the New Testament, the word repent or if you come from the South, repent. Remember when I became a Christian, looking up what some, the words that some of these Southern preachers used trying to figure out what they were saying because my Yankee ears couldn't understand their Southern accents. Like the one fellow who said, if I wanted to hear more of his preaching, I should write to him and he sent me a cassette tape. There were eight-track tapes, and but I didn't know what a cassette was. I couldn't regionalize it to cassette my Yankee ears just couldn't understand him in the, the New Testament as you know was written in Greek the Greek word translated repent is metanoeo meta means to change metamorphosis noeo means to know repentance is the change of mind Nos, no, no, a change of mind. What you once thought was okay to do, you now reject. You notice, you now say, This is wrong. I hate this. I despise myself when I do such things, when I say such things. This is not, not right, it's not what should be. That's what repentance is. And a real change of mind always results in a change of behavior. Once you decide something isn't the brightest thing in the world. When I was a young boy and first got my driver's license, what did I think was the best way to drive? As fast as you could. And my father, knowing the nature of young boys, always pointed out to me the car wrecks that killed kids in my age bracket in our little country town. There was, down south of us, there was a corner known as Dead Man's Curve with a big elm tree at the end of that bend. And there was a group of kids in a car went around that corner on a rain slipped road too fast and they all died when the car smashed into that big old tree. Probably a couple hundred-year-old tree. It was huge. Crushed the car up. Like you'd crush a piece of paper. And some other boys on motorcycles did the same thing. Smashed their heads in. So my father had me vow that I would never ride a motorcycle. A vow which I kept through the high school and college years when motorcycles were cool. Remember Easy Rider? Motorcycles were cool. Especially ones with big handlebars that you couldn't control. I never forgot what my father wanted me to learn about wisdom. You don't do th- some things are just inherently not bright ideas. Keep away from those things, Michael. I had a change of mind because of how he trained me as a young man. A change of mind that led to a change of behavior. A humble and repentant heart. That's what you won't reject. A humble heart admits that I sin seriously. A humble heart looks at why I sin so seriously and doesn't blame it on something else. David could easily have said, as we pointed out last week, if there was one hormone that dominated David, it wasn't adrenaline, it was testosterone. He's a shepherd, a lion or a bear comes to kill some of the sheep. David goes out and kills the lion, kills the bear. Goliath comes to try to defeat the armies of Israel, this great big monster makes Andre the giant look like a little runt. David goes out and kills Goliath. He could have said, God, you gave me so much testosterone. I see a beautiful woman and all those hormones kick in. I'm just out of control. There's no explanation, no attempt to rationalize or justify what he was and what he did. So in humility, he admits the truth about himself. In repentance, he admits the truth about himself. He sinned very seriously. And the reason he sinned seriously was because it was the stuff of which he's made, he said. And he recognizes that's what God will not reject Because that's how we're restored to fellowship. Whenever we tear a relationship apart, showing a humble and repentant heart is the first step towards putting the relationship back together. Then he promises, do what is good for Zion, fortify the walls, build up the walls of Jerusalem. We've explained that already. Then, you will accept the proper sacrifices whole burnt offerings they will be sacrificed on your altar he says if you restore me I'm going to bring about a religious revival I'm going to tell other people about the God who offers full forgiveness to even serious sinners who have sinned very seriously I'll tell other people that God is willing to forgive them to remove the condemnation that they earned I'll tell other people that God will go to the warehouse in heaven and pull a brand new heart off the shelf and restore you so you can walk with God once again and restore you so you can serve Him in a way that would please Him once again. Oh Lord, give me the words and then my mouth will praise you which is the psalms he wrote. Well, something's going on. All the vehicles driving by are whistling. So what do we learn from Psalm 51? We learn that if you have never found Jesus Christ as your Savior He is the one the high priest who made the sacrifice for our sins who will cleanse us with hyssop so that we might be forgiven the guilt might be removed from us and the condemnation removed from us When we become a... Psalm 51 in many ways is the New Testament gospel in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is our high priest, is our savior, is a sacrifice for our sins, the offer of new life, the Holy Spirit indwelling us to transform us, to make us into the person God created us to be, restoration to what God made us to be, what we injured by our serious sin, renewal of spiritual life all the basic truths that we so cherish as christians are here in psalm 51 it occurs to me today that there are probably some here who are burdened by serious sin in their past who have felt that i'm not sure god could ever love me as he once could have as he once did i'm not sure god could ever use me as he once did because of my sin so, I talked to Pastor. We would invite you as when the service is done, to come up, and one of the elders will come up and meet with you and pray with you. and I would invite the elders and small group leaders and others who feel so capable to come up and meet with those who and pray with them that they might find full forgiveness. I know I pray this psalm for our daughter that I mentioned earlier who sins so seriously for my brother who has sinned very seriously, who's an alcoholic and has pretty well destroyed his life and everything he's touched. I pray that he will find full forgiveness yet. And God's partially answered that prayer by bringing Christians across his path, including a boyhood friend who's become a Christian. Interestingly enough, in the Catholic Church, where you don't usually find this kind of message and fervor for God, He's a deacon, and he's taken my brother on as one of his service projects as a deacon, for which I'm very thankful. How God has transformed John has amazed me. I knew John as a young boy. We were in the youth group in our parish together. He's a different person now because of Christ, and you go to his Facebook page, and he, he testifies to everyone how Christ has changed him. If you have not found the Christ who can forgive that sin, if you have not found the freedom of conscience, the removal of guilt, then at, after the service, come up and let us pray with you and help you find that this day. What better thing to do on a Sunday than to be restored to right relationship with God to find forgiveness for your sin and transformation of your life. If sin has been crouching at the door seeking to devour you as Cain was warned. If the wolves are chasing you the wolves of sin then let the church surround you and strengthen you and walk with you through those dark times. Let the church be the cabin with a light on in whose walls you would find safety. There are many men and women in this church who would be glad to walk with you and to stand with you and pray with you as you resist the wolves of sin. And to help you do so, let us assist you in that way. Will you bow with me as we pray? Father God in heaven, we're amazed that you forgave David because all of us would say justice must be served. He has to pay a price for murder and adultery sent him into exile we would not let him remain as king we do want to shame him and punish him in some way and you did not shame him and punish him you forgave him you removed the guilt and condemnation to him you restored his spiritual life and used him mightily in the years that followed in his life and then blessed him with Solomon a son that would be a blessing to any father and mother. I pray for those here who are stained by serious sin that they too may find full forgiveness this day and all that you offered, the joy of your salvation. In the name of our High Priest, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.